All right, thank you. That worship was good today. Yeah, amen. Uh, so we do have a guest speaker. His name's Randall Worley, and I've known Randall for a long time. He's been here before a few times, but uh, I was asking him, you know, usually when you have a guest speaker, you want them to give you a word, right? Yeah, right, everybody, lots of times everybody wants a word, right? There's nothing wrong with that. I'm always, Lord, speak to me. But, but I decided this morning, hey, I'm going to pray and ask the Lord to give me a word for Randall. I did, and so the Lord gave me a word for him. It's just, just uh, put that up there, Denise, that Romans 15. I love this. This is an amazing verse. It's out of the Passion Translation. It says, my dear brothers and sisters, listen to this. There's four things they say in this. Uh, what Paul says, I am fully convinced of your, number one, genuine spirituality. So I can really say that about Randall. I've known Randall since the 80s when he was a pastor at the Church of God in, in Morrisville, or Pineville, the Lifespring Church of God. Number one, genuine spirituality. I know that each of you is stuffed, in that beautiful? Sounds like Thanksgiving. Stuffed full of God's goodness. I have, you know, Randall is stuffed full of God's goodness. He's not just a receiver, but he really gives, and he gives practically, he gives spiritually. I love that, stuffed full of God. Uh, number three, that you are supplied with all kinds of revelation knowledge. All kinds. Randall carries a revelation gift for sure. And number four, that you are empowered to, to effectively instruct one another. Isn't that powerful to effectively? I was saying, man, that'd be a great uh, scripture to put on the tombstone, right? <laughs> you know, if you had those four things, that you were genuinely spiritual, that you were full of God's goodness, you were full of revelation, and that you were able to impart and give away what God gave you. But I can just say that's the truth about Randall. I wanted to give him that scripture as an introduction to him. Um, it's amazing, really. But I think it's something all of us. In fact, I pray that scripture over, over myself and my family and the church quite a bit. So, so Randall, why don't you come on here and, uh, you know, no pressure. You know, you don't have to live up to anything. But I want to pray for him. Pray for us that we are here. Randall wants to be down there so he won't fall off the stage. <laughs> Let's pray. Come on here, Randall. Lord, we thank you for Randall. We thank you for the Holy Ghost and for all that you've done for Randall. Lord, bless him. Bless his family. Lord, his, his wife, his children, his grandchildren. Those people that he so dearly loves. And I just ask you, Lord, that we have ears to hear uh, what you're saying and a heart to understand what you're saying this morning, Lord. This would be good ground, good ground going to us, Lord. Your word would go into good ground this morning. Amen. Good morning. I was thinking on my way here this morning, and um, I think you're correct that our relationship now spans almost 30 years. And um, so we're old friends, and we're getting old. I think he's older than I am. always look forward to being with you. I mean that with all sincerity. And um, before I get busy with what I came to talk to you about this morning, uh, I have uh, some before words that I think will probably connect with a number of people here. Uh, on my way in, I heard this statement in my spirit, and that is that there is nothing, absolutely nothing, that any of you have ever been through that will be wasted. I want to say that again. There's absolutely nothing that you have ever 
magic that has been that will be wasted. I've come to understand over the years that most people really never give up on God. They give up on themselves. And probably the reason for that is because they haven't learned to properly apply wisdom. Um, complaining is wasted energy. Amen. When we should be perceiving what has happened to us, what is happening around us, and rather than saying, why is this happening? We should be saying, what is it saying to me? Does that make sense to you? Amen. Uh, there's a very rare form of Japanese art that maybe some of you are familiar with. It's called Kintsugi. And uh, Kintsugi is unique in as much as it takes uh, pottery that has been broken, that seems to be worthless now, and they retool it, they refashion it by using gold and platinum and silver. You ought to Google that sometime. You'll, you'll see some of the most beautiful vessels. And there are obviously fractures. There's cracks in it. But rather than discarding it, they refashion it by taking gold, silver, and platinum and putting it back together. Isn't that wonderful? Uh, that'd, be a good, that'd be a good title for a book, wouldn't it? Maybe I should write that book. Uh, certainly, I uh, want to say I appreciate um, Byron's concern for us. Uh, many of you know that we're from Myrtle Beach, uh, the land of promise. <laughs> and um, uh, we had this uh, more of a water event than a wind event that uh, came sweeping through with uh, Florence. Um, many of um, our friends have still not been able to get back in their homes. Sometimes, you know, the new cycle moves on, and people are unaware of that. My, my um, son, one of my sons, is the worship leader at the Seacoast campus um, there in Conway. And for two weeks now, uh, every day of the week, they have been distributing um, to those that have been displaced food and paper products. And hundreds of people are coming through there every day. And so... Maybe some of you weren't aware of that, but Byron reached out to us, and I, I really appreciate that. You know, uh, sometimes when we go through that, those kinds of things, um, you begin to wonder, does anybody know we're out here? You know, kind of thing. Uh, but I'm, I'm so thankful for, uh, I know it became a part of the melody, uh, our, our lyric, but uh, it, it was said by someone long ago that every storm does run out of rain. <laughs> and I thank God for that. So I want to invite you, if you will, to turn with me to Luke's Gospel, the Gospel according to Luke. And uh, I'm going to read to you one of the most familiar parables that Jesus ever told. I'll join you there in just a few minutes. But before I do, to posture your thinking, I want to make a few comments here that, um, for me, uh, have been life-changing. Because I'm going to be essentially talking to you about how mercy always triumphs over judgment. Does that sound good to anybody? Does it sound interesting to you at all? That mercy always triumphs over judgment. I believe that most of us are somewhat suspicious of the copious nature of God's mercy. 
And the reason being is that we think that his sense of justice is the same as our sense of justice. Our sense of justice is retributive, but God's sense of justice is restorative. There's a vast difference, and that that in itself is a subject that we could explore this morning, and we're just going to hit the high points of this parable and show you how that is illustrated. You know, I, I don't want to get off on the wrong foot here, but, you know, the icon of justice in this country is what? In front of the Supreme Court, there is a woman who is blindfolded, and she's holding the law in one hand, or she's holding, rather I should say, a set of scales in one hand and a sword in the other. So our idea of justice is that it's blind, right? That it's blind, and it is always weighing us in the scales. You know, we, we um, that's not God's sense of justice. You know, we, we live in a culture that is more paranoid now than probably any time in all of human history. Because it seems that we're under constant surveillance. And we need to be aware that God does have us as well under constant surveillance. He knows the hair that is left in your hairbrush this morning because he numbered it. That's pretty phenomenal to me that he pays that kind of attention to every detail in our lives. But God, God does not have us under constant surveillance in order to try to catch us doing something wrong. I, I love the words of the psalmist who basically says that the twins of goodness and mercy follow us all the days of our lives. Now, if that seems too good to be true to you, then maybe you've never really heard the gospel, the true gospel. Maybe what you've heard is a version or a perversion of the gospel. Because what we're going to be looking at here is the teaching of a man, a rabbi that came from a ghetto called Nazareth. And he comes into an already dominant narrative, and he begins to tell a new story, an entirely new story. I think that we're all due a new story that is really an old story. In Luke chapter 10, if you don't have your Bible, there is therefore now no condemnation to those that don't have one. I just want to pause here long enough to say that um, now that we have, you know, such amazing technology. See, I, I was raised in a religious tradition that um, it was blasphemous to enter into a church without a copy of the scripture in your hand, right? And so now I have to deal sometimes with a little guilt that I don't carry a Bible. I've got an electronic one. Uh, but it's all good. All right, so uh, even though you've read this probably scores of times in your in your life, uh, I just want to see if we can look at it with fresh eyes. Is everybody okay so far? And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, say, and isn't that just like a lawyer? My apologies if you're an attorney. <laughs> Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, 
You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. But he desiring to justify himself said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied, this is the part of the story that I think we may have made certain assumptions about that I want to address. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. And he went and bound him up, bound his wounds up, pouring in oil and wine. Then he set him on his animal and brought him to an end to take care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. This is without question probably one of the best known parables that Jesus ever tells or a story that he tells. I don't understand why that Luke is the only one that included it in his gospels. The others excluded it for some reason. I also feel that it's probably a misnamed parable because we refer to it as the parable of the good Samaritan. In the same way, that uh, Luke 15, the parable of the quote-unquote prodigal is misnamed because the parable of the prodigal son is not about the son, it's about the father. And the word prodigal itself, whenever I say prodigal, what immediately comes to mind? Somebody that has drifted away, somebody that is AOL, somebody is out there somewhere, drifting. But the word prodigal actually means to be lavish and extravagant in spending. You say, well, doesn't that describe the son, what he did? No, I think it really describes what the father did. Because the father was lavish and generous in his giving to this ungrateful son. You know, I, I, don't, I don't think we realize sometimes that uh, there is no such thing as unbiased thought. Everything we think, everything we read, everything that we see is influenced by the things that we already know. Right. So when you suggest these kinds of things, you know, it's a little counterintuitive to people. It's like, you know, for years, and I'm not questioning the legitimacy of somebody's conversion, if they tell me that on such and such a date, in such and such a place that they invited Jesus into their life. I'm not questioning the, the legitimacy of that conversion when they frame it that way. The truth is, it was not so much you inviting Jesus into your life as much as it was he inviting you into his. Who followed who? Who pursued who? So, I, I, don't, I, don't, I also don't think that we realize... In this exchange that takes place between Jesus and this lawyer. A lawyer um, in this culture was a man who was adept and skilled in his ability to find people guilty. And what Jesus is doing 
in this exchange is rattling to him. There's a lot of tension. Uh, I'm not sure we realize just how palpable this conversation was. And even those that may have been leaning in and listening to the exchange that took place between them. Did you happen to notice that, and I tried to emphasize it when I was reading it, did you happen to notice that the lawyer asked the question in order to justify himself? Which I don't, I don't mean in any way to turn that on you. I turn that on myself because quite often I'm unaware of my motives. I think I know my motives. But sometimes my questions are really not to get an answer, but what I want is agreement. I mean, I, you know, for years, you, you mentioned that I was a pastor for almost 30 years. And um, I'll never forget, this would happen quite often when I would see somebody new in our congregation. And uh, they seemed to be really connecting with what I was saying. And they would come up to me after the meeting and they say, you know, I really like your teaching and preaching because you preach the word. Which I never contested that, but I was, I'm, I'm thinking the whole time they're saying that, no, I'm teaching what you believe to be the Word. Isn't it amazing, yeah, you found this to be true, uh, that what, what you say and what people hear can be entirely different. I mean, I've had people come to me after a meeting and they said, they're rehearsing what they thought I said, and what they thought I said was not what I said at all. I wonder if they were even in the same room. Sometimes what they thought I said and what I actually said was better than what I said. Does that make sense to you? Are you with me so far? So, I mean, this is a, this is a totally scandalous thing that is going on here in this conversation. Because when Jesus introduces this idea of a good Samaritan, uh, I mean, that, that, that is definitely paradoxical. Paradoxical, you know, like an open secret or acting naturally or, you know, deafening silence. Those are, those are paradoxes, right? Or oxymorons, I should say. So for Jesus to begin to spin this story, and it, of course, uh, contextually, it was something that would have would have happened. Whether it really happened or not, I don't know, but I'm sure there was constantly circulating in the news instances like this that happened. Because this was uh, this stretch of road, which is about 17 miles long between Jerusalem and uh, this area where all this occurred, down toward the Dead Sea, was the most treacherous road in all of Palestine, in all of Israel, I should say. It was treacherous. You took your life in your own hands in going down that road. Jerusalem sits 2,500 feet above sea level. And the area that he's in, that he's describing, is 850 feet below sea level. It's called the Valley of the Shadow of Death. And so that's where this whole crime unfolds. Now, of course, when, when Jesus begins to introduce, I think I may have left out in my reading some of the characters but when Jesus talks about a priest and a Levite coming along, usually what we do because every, every one of us, without realizing it, have a religious lens to our interpretation of everything.
and we think about these two self-righteous individuals. The truth is, is that Jesus was not trying to incriminate them at all. Because you do understand that even though this story is being told in the New Testament, that we are still under the auspices of the Old Covenant. Because the New Covenant is not initiated until Jesus from the cross says, it is finished. So everything that Jesus did or said up until the cross and saying it is finished is still in the Old Covenant, under the Old Covenant. So Jesus was not trying to incriminate these guys because the Old Covenant prohibited them from doing anything, from being merciful. Are you still with me? Because this would have rendered them unclean. Now, I like to read the Bible with imagination. And, uh, you know, I, I've come to realize that if we take a more of a mystical approach, we, we can see that there's more between the margins than we realize. You know, I, I'm not sure that Luke rehearsed in uh, high definition and surround sound in the way that Jesus told the story. Uh, I, this, this man was bludgeoned. When it says he was beaten, he was bludgeoned. Uh, you would not have been able to identify him with photographs. He probably would have taken dental records. That's how bad he was beaten. So what is this, uh, what is this story? What is this parable about? Is it about the Levite? Is it about the priest? Is it about this anonymous Good Samaritan? Who's it really about? Maybe it's about the man who was beaten. Jesus is forever telling stories where he encrypts certain messages. And you don't really realize what he was saying until later. Because he never really came to teach people what to think, but to teach them how to think. Who was the person in the story that was bludgeoned within an inch of his life. Who is this? Jesus, in my opinion, is talking about his own destiny. And he's talking about the responses to it and the perception of what would happen to him. Does that seem too far-fetched for you? Some of you look at me rather odd. You know, <laughs> would you agree with me, and you don't have to, would you agree with me that religion has a way of trying to manage their expectations of God? Have you found that to be true? And then when he says things to me that does not in any way line up with what I've always thought to be true, uh, it, it makes me, you know, wonder, well, what else have I passionately believed that was not true? That's a scary thought, isn't it? I've got a question for you. How many of you, and I've probably asked this on previous visits, how many of you in this audience this morning, you passionately believe certain things right now that at one time you didn't believe? I'm waiting on a response. Very good. So, 
If that was it, the case in your evolution, in your growth, is it possible that there's far more that you're going to discover that will challenge or possibly even displace previous beliefs? Uh, you know, let me help you here and uh, calm you to some degree and let you know that it's not so much that what you have known to this point is inaccurate, but it is possible that it's incomplete. And this is essentially what Jesus is doing when he's telling this story. And I think it's probably as relevant as any story that we could tell right now because our country in particular, and of course this is true globally, is more polarized than any time I can remember in my entire life. The us versus them thing, those who are in and those who are out, this whole thing of, which is really ego-driven. It's really ego-driven. You know, I was thinking on the way here this morning, not that I just didn't start thinking about this that I was going to say to you today, um, but I was thinking on my way here this morning that really history is the story of wars. Let me think about that for just a minute. When you think about human history, what is it? It's the story of wars, and it started with the first human family. I mean, you, you go there to the Genesis narrative, and we're introduced to this family, Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel. And, and think of how, what an atrocity this was that, and I personally believe that it's possible that they were twin brothers. That may be a stretch for some of you, and I would try to prove that. Um, but think about how tragic this is that there had never been a murder. There's only four human beings on the planet. Isn't it amazing that men would rather go to war than to engage and discover the possibility that they may be wrong? Which demands a measure of intelligent humility, doesn't it? Well, again, those words don't seem, that seems like an odd pairing of words, intelligent humility. You don't really find much humility among those that consider themselves to be intelligent, do you? I think Twain was right when he said, it's not the things that we don't know that give us trouble, it's the things that we're certain of that just aren't some. But there were deep-seated prejudices that exist then. And even the use of the word prejudice causes us to categorize that just in terms of race. And that's unfortunate. Because that's just only one aspect of it. Really, it's a symptom. I don't want, I don't want to discount you know, that issue, but it, it really is a symptom. All of us have certain prejudices. I mean, I've never met a racist that thought they were a racist. I think I need to change something. The prejudices were so deep when, when Jesus begins to tell about the mercy and the goodness 
of this quote-unquote Samaritan who were considered a mongrel race, if you know anything about the Old Testament. There was a saying among, in the Jewish community, you know, among those that could point back to Abram in their lineage. And this saying was, was rather strong. It says, you know, those that eat bread with Samaritans eat the flesh of swine. And they couldn't unremember, you see, this is something you won't really find in the Old Testament record, but it's historically accurate anyway, that they couldn't unremember something that had happened in centuries past when the Samaritans had raided their temple and desecrated it. Isn't that, isn't that the issue with most of us is that we have this problem of remembering the things we should forget? So now you understand why I say that when Jesus is telling the story, the tension that must have been there that was just unbelievable. Now, to, you know, to put this in a contemporary context, you know, we have been so desensitized, haven't we? We've been so desensitized because it, it seems like the news cycle is constantly, as soon as we get up in the morning, we hear about another act of violence. Uh, this, this really does challenge uh, our, our nationalistic ideas, but um, there is nothing redemptive about violence. That's a myth. Absolutely nothing. That's why, why when Jesus comes along and, and he's teaching the way he is, it was not just difficult for the religious community, but for the political community as well. Because he's talking about turning the other cheek. He's talking about absorbing hatred rather than reacting to it. Wow. That's a tough one for us, isn't it, here in the West? Again, sometimes I wonder if we've ever really, really read the Gospels. What we've done is we read into it. And so when Jesus is talking about mercy in this situation, especially for someone that in their opinion was not worthy of it, it was jarring, to say the least. Um, I have a friend that uh, endorsed my last book. His name is Ted Decker. Um, some of you hear your responses. Ted is a, an amazing uh, Christian fiction author. He just released another book that has to do with mysticism. And um, if, if you ever have the opportunity to, to meet Ted, um, you'll find out that he is that. He is rather idiosyncratic, to say the least. You'll never hear this teaching, but uh, if somehow it did come his way, I chose the word idiosyncratic. <laughs> didn't say weird. Oh, I'm sorry, Ted. But he has a different way of looking at life. So anyway, what I'm getting at here is that uh, he told me that, I don't know how many years ago it was, because he has this huge following, I think he sold about 10 million books, he told me that he decided, because he wanted to connect, connect more with his readers, that he was going to hold this um, lottery or whatever, and he was going to give whoever was chosen the opportunity to have an hour phone conversation with him. 
And uh, so he said, you know, someone was chosen. And when the time came and the person was given the number and he answers the phone, as soon as he answers the phone, this woman on the other side says, I don't have any questions to ask you about your writing, none whatsoever. I do enjoy your books, but I don't have any questions about your writing. And he was a little puzzled by that. She said, I want to tell you a story. And I don't know what book she was reading, but at some point she, as she's reading one of Ted's books, she has this epiphany. And she said, let me tell you quickly my story. She said, uh, I think she was maybe possibly in her 40s. She said, all of my life, I have struggled with being overweight. She said, in fact, morbidly obese. I've tried everything and have not been able to overcome it. At some point in time when I was reading in one of your books about the mercy of God, I believe it was, she said, something happened to me, and I was taken back to when I was a teenage girl, and I was being savagely raped by two teenage boys. She said, in that moment, I was. it was surreal. She said, it was... Like I was taken all the way back to when I was 16 or 17 years old and this happened. She said, but this time I saw Jesus standing beside of me watching this happen to me. And he was weeping. And I looked at him and this is what changed for me. She lost all the weight. But she said, this is what changed for me. She said, I looked at him and I said, why didn't you stop that? And his response was shocking. He said, I was not just weeping for you. I was weeping for them. That will challenge your understanding of mercy, won't it? I mean, the inhumane acts of man, I believe, reflect the misunderstood love of God. Because all of us, you know, when we hear about another shooting, just two weeks ago, I was in uh, Coral Springs, Florida, and the church that I was speaking at, you may know Randy Carter, um, the church I was speaking at is just less than a mile away from uh, the high school shooting there, where so many were killed. And, you know, they're still, they're still reeling from this and trying, uh, you know, to make sense out of it all. And so when you say that the inhumane acts of man reflect the misunderstood love of God, that's hard to get our minds around. Because his love is for the victimized and the victimizer. God remains merciful in the midst of all of this insanity that is going on. You know, this past week in a town near us, Florence, South Carolina, you probably heard about the shooting there. And I, you know, I'm checked every time I get a story like that, and I think to myself, because usually what happens is that something rises up in me that is retributive in nature, and I hope that that person gets what they deserve. Now, I know you don't do that, because you've matured far beyond me, but, you know, just bear with me a little bit, Right? Really what it does is it reminds me of the depth and the breadth of God's mercy. His indefinable compassion. His indiscriminate love. I love to phrase it that way. His indiscriminate love. He shines, the sun shines upon the just and 
the unjust. Remember I told you our sense of justice and his is not the same at all. Even though we would rather it be that way. So again, as Jesus is telling this story, I think what he is attempting to do is he's trying to help us to understand why we are really here. Why, why did you come out of eternity in the time to have this human experience? Have you ever thought about that? Really? I mean, I, I don't consider myself necessarily a deep thinker, but sometimes I, you know, when I'm by myself, and I'm ruminating, I'm contemplating, and I think, you know, why am I really here? Is it to do what I'm doing right now? To talk to people all over the world? Is that what I'm here? Is it to write books? Is it to, you know, if I believe the American dream, and please don't stone me, but if I believe the American dream is to accomplish, to achieve, to accumulate, that, is that what it's about? Or those of us that believe in having encounters with the presence of God. Make sure you listen to me closely. We tend by default to think that our, the reason why we're here as humans is to be in pursuit of spiritual experience. Is that why? Really, is that why? We've heard this said by so many people, Pierre Chardin is the one who's responsible for it. He said, we are not humans in pursuit of spiritual experience. We are spiritual beings in pursuit of a human experience. So you mean to ask, you mean to, you mean to resolve this question for you and help you to understand why are you here? Why do you still have a pulse? You want to know? Why did you incarnate? You know, we, we tend to relegate the word incarnation just to Jesus, but it means to be made flesh, right? So why did you incarnate? The same reason why he incarnated. Because we have limited the scope of his incarnation to our salvation. But the real reason for his incarnation is so that he could experience empathy and feel what you feel. That's probably the most profound thing I've said this morning. That's what it's about. You know, uh, it, it took me six decades to come to this conclusion. You know, I have the privilege of being a, a husband and a father and a grandfather. I have the privilege of speaking to audiences, but no, the real reason why I'm here is to experience empathy. Jesus chose not. He, he preferred not to be called the Son of God. Have you ever noticed that? Eighty times he refers to himself as the Son of Man. Was that false humility? Why is he calling himself Son of Man? Why is he doing that? Because if you, if you back away and then look again... At, the, at the, the narrative concerning his life, you will see that he is always gravitating toward the dehumanized and the marginalized. The castaways, right? That's where he is gravitating toward. If 
He is, and he certainly is, he is God made manifest in the flesh. Paul would say in Timothy, this is one of the great mysteries that God was made manifest in the flesh. See, there were some, some things that God couldn't do. Because in his infinite nature, he could not experience, emote, feel what we feel until he came into this form so that he could feel it. You see, really, that's what Jesus is trying to, I believe, convey in telling this story of quote-unquote Good Samaritan. It's about empathy. You know, that, that's not, doesn't seem to very, be a very exciting subject to people. Because, you know, they would rather, they would rather hear about something that is, will cause them in their perception to prosper more. And I'm, and I'm not against that. But if I can't feel what other people feel, if I, you know, empathy, in my definition of, uh, of empathy, is the echo of someone else's pain. And the problem, I believe, that I'm experiencing in so many places I go is that there's really not a clear theology of suffering. I'm coming full circle to where I started when I said absolutely nothing that you've gone through will be wasted. And out there would be some that would really push back on me and say, wait a minute, you know, I don't, I don't really want a theology of suffering. Because Jesus said that I came, he came that we might have life and have it more abundantly. In this world you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer because I have overcome the world. You know, so we, we take our sound bites that are palatable to us. I'm not talking about pursuing suffering. I'm not talking about praying for it. It is inevitable though. And here's the issue. When it happens, do I properly interpret it? Do I realize that wisdom would say this is not something that is happening to me? Or why is this happening to me? But what is it saying to me? Because you'll do either one of two things with pain. You will either transform it or you'll be a transmitter of it. So why does it come? That's the reason why in his resurrection body. He did not have to retain the wounds, did he, to prove unequivocally that he was the one that had been hung on the cross and consequently put in the tomb. He, so why did he retain the wounds? To prove to us that you can be wounded and resurrected at the same time. So Thomas, go ahead. Put your hand in there. Feel that. Right? And I, you know, maybe I'm taking license with, with the story in John. But remember when he thrust his hand into his side? He didn't say, oh my Lord and my God. I'm convinced now when he put the, his finger in the nail prints. But when he thrust his hand into his side, and here again I may be taking liberty with it, but I personally believe because, see, John would say that Jesus came from the bosom of the Father, from the heart of the Father. And when he, this man whose rationale was being rocked and whose logic was being wrecked when he thrust his hand into his side. Is it possible that he may have felt the beating heart of the Father? He felt it. 
You see, I, I, listen, people really don't need any more of our memorized verses. In fact, you know, probably one of the most abused passages in all the Bible is Romans 8, 28. Now, don't look at me in that tone of voice. I mean, you, you know what I'm talking about. And sometimes when you're in the throes of something that is traumatic and somebody plays that card, come on. How do you really feel? Like if one more person tells me all things work together for the good, then the other one, I'll call it according to purpose. I think I'm going to go off on them. <laughs> what? Yeah. Now you got to hear this, and I'm, I'm actually coming. This is my close. you got, you got to really hear this. Jesus was not a human. He was the only human one. He was the archetype of what humans are supposed to look like. And the thing that to me that was so magnetic was not the profundity of his teaching, but when people were with him, they knew that he was fully present. We live in a culture of talkers that trample over one another and don't realize that probably the most generous thing that you could ever do for another human is to listen. That's empathy. That means I want to enter into what you're feeling. Isn't that what he did? The people that are really our teachers are not the ones that are able to communicate information that causes things to change here. The ones that are the real teachers are the ones that are able to travel that 18-inch journey that's why Maya Angelou, so profound. People will always forget what you said, but they'll never forget how you made them feel. So what is this all about? It's about empathy. It's about understanding that mercy, this is from James, mercy always triumphs over judgment. about every time I see something that is senseless and should have justice rain down on it, it's a reminder that the change that I want to see take place or I think should take place in other people is probably the change that needs to take place in me. Think about somebody right now. Not too long, because I don't want to lose you. Think about somebody right now that you have total disdain and disgust for. 
whether it be somebody on the national stage or somebody in your workplace. Is it possible that what is so troubling to you about them is something that needs to change in you? Boy, that's a terrible place to end, isn't it? (laughs) Otherwise, I approach this like a lawyer and I want to justify myself. And I feign asking sincere questions when really I want you to give me an answer that makes me feel better about the way I see the situation. Now you understand why I said that Jesus is this rabbi that comes from a ghetto and comes into a dominant narrative and he begins to tell a totally different story. You know, uh, I told you that this is my closing and it is. Would it help you at all if I said this with, you know, you can believe it or not, I say it with all sincerity. The things that I need, I, I teach best the things that I need to learn the most. Yeah. Yeah. So can we lean into this this morning? Can we ask him to impart to us an alternative wisdom? That's interesting. An alternative wisdom. Because, you know, tonight when you lay your head on the pillow, the world system is already crafting a script that will tell you what you should think tomorrow. That makes sense to you? It will tell you what you're supposed to think tomorrow. When real wisdom causes you to realize that there was something that was true before they told you what was true. Go ahead and stand with me. Thank you guys. You've been so so kind to me. This is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior.
tremendous variety. But I kept uh, feeling compelled during the worship time to say to you guys that I know that you advance and uh, you advocate a prophetic culture as part of your DNA. And um, that I value and esteem. And uh, I hope this makes sense to you. I, I know that that prophetic culture has had great value in edifying uh, this community of believers and people that become a part of it, and even outside of the walls. But I feel like that there is, I'll just go for it, I feel like that there is a, an upgrade that is coming. Uh, and uh, it will not just be on a personal level, but it will be the principalities and powers and spiritual wickedness in high places in this region. Now, exactly what that looks like, I'm not sure. Um, but I do believe, uh, as that begins to unfold, and you will get the strategy for it, that as you begin to... And see, that's not something that you that you want to uh, assume to do, unless you have a commission to do it, because you get your brains beat out. You know? you got to understand your, your jurisdiction. You know, just like a Mooresville police officer, when he leaves Mooresville and he goes into Charlotte... I don't care if he does have a badge and a car and a gun. He has no jurisdiction. If he tries to pull me over in Charlotte, he has no authority whatsoever. So I think that there is an enlargement of your measure of rule in your, in your spiritual jurisdiction. And that strategy is going to come to be able to speak to the principalities and powers of spiritual wickedness in high places uh, that have positioned themselves. And many of them have been here for decades and decades and decades. But it won't be with some bombastic attitude, you know, you know, just screaming and pulling it down. But it will be in in great power, which is in meekness, because that's power under control. And then the other thing is, is that I mean, I'm stating the obvious. You don't have to be prophetic to see this, but uh, Lake Norman, this whole area up here, is this huge reservoir that is vital to the life of the city of Charlotte. It's not the only water system, it's not the only reservoir, but Lake Norman, which is probably one of the largest lakes in this entire region, is, is the, and they become deeply concerned south of you whenever the water tables begin to fall. I believe that you also, River, that you are a reservoir that somehow is going to begin to spill over into Charlotte. I'm sure it already has to a degree, but even more so. I feel that the river right now is swollen. And I hear the words in Joshua that says that Jordan overflowed all of its banks at the time of harvest. And so whatever the banks have been, the parameters have been, the boundaries have been in the past, when the rivers begin to swell like the Waccamo River did behind my son's house and the waters came all the way up to his foundation even though it was a mile away, that the banks and the boundaries were totally submerged there was fish that showed up in his yard fish in his yard and so I just feel like that's getting ready to happen it's going to swell no more banks no more boundaries amen that's what I got to say wow just stay standing for a minute thank you Randall for that word but that message was really the Lord. And I want to just 
to take a minute here to pray for you. And I wanted Becky to come with me because uh, uh, Thursday night I was driving in the country uh, home uh, and a, a memory came to me. And the memory was in the day Alton Trotter was killed in a motorcycle accident. And that was all. I could go, I went back to the very moment of that day that I found out about Alton. You know, he was 22 years old. And, you know, off this grief that was in my heart started coming up, and I was like, Lord, what in the world? Why do I feel this grief? And, and then, you know, you can feel grief, but that was a few years ago. What year was that? 2012. I experienced a lot of stuff in that season, but. Um, I was just really asking the Lord, you know, about uh, tragedy and sorrow and, and why things go wrong uh, in my life and in other people's lives. And one of the things that I feel like the Lord was answering that this morning with your message was, and it's been something that Becky and I have talked about, and we've used that word empathy over and over in our home. Um, I've come to this conclusion in my life about what I'm doing with my life in terms of being a pastor. And it, you know, can mean a lot of things at different times, but it really comes down that the Lord wants to help people. And that's what he told me. That's why what I want you to do is help people. And, you know, I just feel like what Randall was saying today is that God wants to help you in those places that are broken in you, places where you've experienced loss or places where you have that why. You know, some of it may not be as intense as losing a child. It could be a little thing, but the Lord, the Lord really wants us to hear what He was saying to us this morning. He really does. And I think what He said uh, helped me a lot. Uh, you know, why am I going through this? But what is this saying to me? It's, and, I, and I've sort of learned, he sort of helped me get what God's been saying to me for a long time. Dealing with, with harsh things and dealing with loss and what I felt was defeat. It was, it was that. What is this saying to me? What, what's, what's this, what, is, what is God saying to me? And I feel like that's really, it all came down to that. And I wanted, you know, Becky to say something on this because she's, you know, we've had so many conversations about empathy in our house, about, you know, the Lord's empathy and how, what Randall says, sometimes we have the answer. We think we don't have the answer if we wanted to say something. Sometimes God's answer is like when, when Job's friends showed up and they sat there for a week, seven days, and nobody spoke. And as long as nobody was talking, God was there. But the minute somebody opened their mouth, God left, and the tragedy just unfolded, and, and which God allowed to happen, obviously, to teach us. But I just feel like God sometimes is silent with us, you know, and it's not because He didn't. But it's really his answer to us. He's 
Somehow he's trying to communicate something beyond just words. I hope you're getting this. But I do think this is a word for us this morning. And I think it's a word for healing. And I think it's a word for deliverance. And I think it's a word to be able to go on with your life and step in to this. Step in, even though you might not have the answer, but be able to walk in. And then somewhere in that walk, suddenly things are gonna they're gonna be alright. And you're gonna be alright. And God is gonna meet you. Amen. Well, I just want to just say that this that she said today has been a journey for me for a few years to come out of the religion. But just mindsets that aren't worth two cents to people out there, and really aren't worth it's not worth anything to one another really. But I think just want to just reiterate that the most generous thing we can do is listen to people. And not have the answer. Because that is just killing each other. It's just to spout out had answers. And the Lord began to speak to me about empathy almost two years ago. It's really wild. I had a friend that just brought the, brought it up one day. And it kind of just unraveled the mercy thing, the religion thing. Because I feel like as believers, we are so guilty. I'm just talking now, but we're just so guilty of this of not listening and just giving this pat stuff that is just not working. It's not working at all. It's not working in the world. You know, sinners need sympathy. Not sympathy, but empathy. Because Paul said it. I've been preaching this to y'all. He listed all those horrific things. And he said, you were, you were once yourself. And so we have to realize that that's where we are apart from the grace of God. We're right there with the murderers, the slanderers, the backbiters. That's who we are apart from the grace of God and our new creation that we live in. So it's just what he has preached today is I just, I'm just saying amen. I had honestly in the last few months had kind of had started right back into the mindset of religion again. And I was just fighting it. And thinking, Lord, was that you that said all that to me? And so today I just knew, yes, he's been really speaking this to us for a while. And amen. Thank you. So let me just pray for you. Just stand. Uh, just keep standing. And after I pray, I'm going to ask the us yeah. ushers to help me have an offering for Randall. Okay. So, Father, thank you for, for speaking to us and. Lord, really, um, I just believe a lot of people in this room, Lord, there's these spots in their hearts that you fought to get to. You've been fighting to get to that spot, that one little hurt, that little wound, that place that was covered. And you have walked through things to get there, to get to us, to answer our questions, or just be there with our questions be there with us in our why and somehow we know it's, it's going to be alright so I just pray Lord you're a magnificent healer you're a magnificent healer and I just pray you would magnificently heal hearts in this room right now Lord people who are suffering people who even think they might need to go to a counselor whatever it may be that today the healing would come and the revelation would come into the heart.
just ask you to do that, Lord. Just let the peace of God flow, like you said earlier, like a river, untamed. And the joy of the Lord would come into hearts, Lord. And those hearts that are suffering with grief, Lord, that you would help us walk through our grief in a healthy way. And not be ashamed. No more. This is one thing that I want to tell you. This is lots of times when you go through defeat, you feel shame on you. You feel ashamed. You feel because you don't want people to see yourself and defeated what you consider to be defeated. But God does not want anybody to feel shame of themselves what's happened in their life. There's no shame in Christ. God does not even want you to feel any shame. I want you that shame to be thrown off in you today. That you're not a failure. You're not disapproved. No matter what, God does not look at you like that. And God wants to reach you. I just think it's beautiful that the Lord was communicating his heart to this lawyer that he was that guy that was absolutely brutalized. That he was that guy. That's what he was prophetically trying to declare. I'm that guy. Lord, just pour that oil and wine into us today. Pour that oil and wine into us today. so badly. And Lord, we need to have a, um, this wisdom that Randall spoke about. So I, I beckon you, Lord, to release wisdom for us about our lives, about our hurts, about our disappointments, about our, our what we call defeat. We release that wisdom to us right now, Lord, to see that and hear what is being said truly. Y'all guys can get that. Let's just wait another minute. I just want to give the Lord a chance this morning to help anybody in this room. If there's just one person in this room, you feel like God is speaking to you right now. I want to give you that chance for wholeness and for breakthrough in your life and your heart.
you would be like the Apostle Paul when he said, forgetting what lies behind and laying hold of what I've been laid hold of for. I just pray that for you today. I pray that you have a new, that new life in Christ. It would begin today for you. That new wisdom, that new healing, that new deliverance. And you would believe again. You would have hope again. You would be refreshed again. And you would go on with your life. And you would be willing to learn new things. You would be willing to see new and think new. You would be willing to lay down some things that are hindering you, some of your beliefs, some of your thoughts. You'd be willing to let go of them to have something greater and deeper. And you would know what those things are. Lord, I just ask you to do that today in Jesus' name. Woo, thank you, Lord. Oh, Jesus, help. Bring the offering up here. Mm. Oh, and you can um, give on the app. We have it set up where I think it says guest speaker or something like that. If that's why you want to give, but it goes for everything goes for random. So if we want to pass those out, and, you know, take a minute here. Why don't we start singing that song while we're doing this? You can sing and give at the same time. <laughs> Some people can't. This is my story. Let's sing it. Come on, y'all. Yeah, Shane, y'all better be a little chat. This is our story. And then, you know, we can have the minister team come up here also. If anybody would like hands laid on. I feel like there's somebody in here, I was just feeling this, that maybe you could come get prayer. But there's just been things in your life you were like stunned, and I just feel like that means stuck. That the Lord really wants to um, get you out of that place. You're just stuck somewhere. And um, I believe there's power available this morning to bring you right out of that. 